Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Welcome to the Kudzu Vine for January 22nd, 2023. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome Tim Shifflett. Good evening, sir. All right. Uh, looking forward to tonight's show in about 20 minutes. We're going to welcome onto the show for just multiple times now, becoming one of our favorite guests from Daily Co's educator from uh, the Los Angeles area, Steve Singizer, and Steve's going to talk to us about some California politics. In addition, um, some other thing, you know, tragic news out of uh, Los Angeles, which of course we'd be remiss not to mention that. But we're going to talk about it in a little more detail with somebody that's actually from that city and county. Um, also, some educational issues. Um, but kind of to start off our show. Something that has been brewing um, for really a few weeks now. I started noticing it, and I won't say I was the first person to notice it, but Tim and Catherine can probably back me up that I was one of the first that noticed it, that there was a lot of messaging and talk um, out of Brian Kemp's administration that let's just say doesn't fit with a lot of the red meat uh, messaging and topics that the current Republican Party um, likes. And um, one thing, and the Politico actually did a whole article on this, is that uh, Brian Kemp has been very big in his recruitment of electric car manufacturers and electric car ma- parts manufacturers. And if you know people like Marjorie Taylor Greene are very against anything with electric cars. Now, I'll do I think this is because, um, you know, Brian Kemp fully understands and embraces the, the uh, challenges of climate change? No. I think at the end of the day, he sees it as a way to bring jobs to the state, so let's just get them. And in that article, politically said as much. We're going to talk about some of the other dominoes in a minute, but let's not get ahead of ourselves, and let's just start there. Catherine, we had on a few months ago – a guest, uh, Chaz Moore, that was talking about the plant, the Revian um, electric truck plant that the Kemp administration was trying to bring. And then since then, there's been several more that have happened. What's your take on this push for electric car plants and electric car parts plants that have happened recently? Well, I think you make a a good point that it has more to do with getting – jobs to to Georgia than it does with any uh, embracing of, you know, alternative energy and, um, you know, the, the bigger uh, vision of what electric cars uh, provide. Um, but I do think it's, um, I, I've, I've noticed not, not just about electric cars. I just, I've noticed that I, I just think that 
Governor Kemp is trying to convey a more moderate image. I don't understand the reason for it, but it feels like that. So, but but as far as electric car electric cars and the bigger picture, I think this has more to do with jobs than with uh, you know embracing that vision. Yeah, and a job's not a bad thing. Um, you know, a no, better wage not a bad job is, is good. And, 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 you know, really that playbook was started under Democrats decades ago. Before any of us were even born, William Hartsfield was uh, attracting, um, you know, the, the Air Postal Service as a hub from Atlanta. Well, um, Tim, what's your take on, the, you know, the, this, just the electric car part of this? Well, I I think the same thing that that uh, y'all y'all do. It's uh it's it's all about jobs. It's also very good politics right now. And uh, if there's something I think this governor's pretty good at, it's sniffing the political winds to see which way it's blowing. And uh, you know he's laying the groundwork for something else this this is one part of it it's a very big part of it because it's going to be a lot of jobs and a lot of money and in a lot of places you know not named atlanta and that that sort of thing so uh you know i I, i'm glad he's doing it you know we can always use the jobs we can always use the uh revenue that'll be provided uh by those large businesses being here so you know if he reaps a political benefit from it he's he's certain i have to grudgingly say he certainly earned it yes this kind of reminds me of nathan deal's recruitment of the um film industry uh because what i do think is interesting about this even before we get to the other pieces to this puzzle when Nathan Deal brought in the uh, film industry, a lot, I think, Republicans said, and they're right about this, you're probably bringing in a lot of new folks to the state that are not going to vote Republican. They're going to want to vote Democrat. And then I think the same thing may be um, happening with the electric car plants. Maybe not won't bring as many workers in, but it may get people to rethink this reflexive notion of, oh, if it's not gasoline-powered, it's bad. It's kind of like the, the stoves we mentioned at the, clo- the close. Um, you know, if it opens people's minds up to other things and they start to reconsider positions that they're supposed to hold, that softens their political stances. So it's very interesting in that, that um, vein. So let's talk about the next part of this. Just this past week, he went to Switzerland for the World Economic Forum, also known as Davos, and this thing is highly controversial among hardcore conservative voters. This was something that, I mean, I think in the past years when they've had this convention, Tucker Carlson on Fox News has done segments decrying it. Um, you know, Brian Kemp went to this event, and I don't know how many other Republicans even thought about doing that. Tim, what was your take on his decision to go to the World Economic Forum? Well, let's look at the big picture with that. Number one, well, first of all, the reason any elected official goes over there is to to hopefully talk to the right people 
that can provide business to his district, state, country, etc., etc., and also it's people he can meet that you know might accept imports from us because the state of Georgia certainly exports uh, some stuff, and so it's a good two-way street to meet. Um, and you know, if I if I was any governor, big city mayor, something like that, I think I'd head over there. Uh, and he doesn't have to pay a political price by doing that. Number one, he doesn't have to face Georgia voters again as the governor. Uh, quite, uh, you know, and and he's already proved he doesn't have to worry about Donald Trump or anything Donald Trump's going to say or do to it. He's dealt with that as well. He can begin thinking now about laying groundwork for what he wants to do next, and all of this economic stuff that he's doing is part of it. He is building himself a resume for the next thing that he's going to do. Yes, Catherine, um, I'm sure you're familiar with both Davos, the actual event, and Davos, the narrative that a lot of the conservative conspiracy theorists come up with. What's your take on a Republican governor that we saw you know, just over four years ago talking about rounding up illegal immigrants in his uh, tr- pickup truck and pointing a gun at his daughter's boyfriend? Different take, isn't it? Yeah, well, I think Tim is absolutely spot on correct. This is uh, Brian Kemp preparing for whatever uh, his next um, whatever his next role is, whatever it might be. I mean, we can all speculate about what that could be, but I think he's preparing for that. He's uh, putting some. He's making himself available to talk with these world leaders and, you know, financial leaders, um, as well as obviously uh, working to, to bring business to Georgia. And, and so, but I think it has a lot to do with uh, preparing himself for what's next. Yeah, and we'll get to that if not tonight, some other time, what might be next, because it's still a, a, a ways down the road uh, before we know that for sure. So now the next piece of the puzzle, we still got two more. Um, before the election, Brian Kemp, um, you know, to his credit, made good on his uh, proposal to raise teacher salaries, and then he also at the same time raised state employees' salaries. Now, before the election, you're thinking, well, he's just trying to get people in his camp that might be, or, or, you know, to vote for him, at least in the primary against David Perdue, that might be a little more friendly, possibly keep him for the general. But now, there's no election. Tim, you made it clear he's he's not going to face the voters again. So, he then announces in his State of the State address, he wants to give a pay raise to teachers, $2,000 again. Pay raise to all state employees, $2,000 again. These are government workers. Now, if you want to shrink the size of government so small that you can drown it in the bathtub, 
you know, giving government workers all this extra pay doesn't sound like that, does it? What do you think the angle is here? Who are you, you asking, asking me? Oh, I'm sorry. I apologize, Tim. I had said your name at some point and then forgot to say it again. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, he uh, he he's he's building his chops with a broad base of voters, guys. I mean, he can do this stuff. He he can adopt a more moderate stance on a lot of stuff, and still feel that he sufficiently appeals to conservatives uh, because of things like, you know, his touting the early opening of the state during uh, the COVID crisis, for instance, very popular with conservatives. Uh, he, He fought against the Medicaid expansion, very, very popular with the most conservative voters. Guns, of course, we know where he is there. Not only with the talk, but with the legislation that he followed through with. And, of course, he's talking the most popular thing, the tax cuts and the rebates. Uh, So he can live the best of both worlds. Uh, And uh, he's, he's getting it done, too, guys. I mean, he really is getting it done um i mean pay raises for teachers and state employees you think wow that's odd but look how many tens of thousands of teachers there are not to mention the tens of thousands of state employees and every one of them has a family and everybody know is kin to somebody or knows somebody that's a state employee uh, and a lot of these state employees, like uh, I've got a relative with the state highway department, and he lives in Rockmart, you know, not a big town. It's where a lot of state employees live. He can touch every part of the state with this, uh, including the most conservative voters. And who's going to be opposed to a pay raise for their neighbor who teaches, you know, high school English or something? I don't think anybody really is. Uh, so so he's, well, he's, he's pushing the right buttons. Well, the Republican Party, a lot of them want to vilify teachers, but, I mean, that's a whole other discussion. But, I mean, Catherine, a lot of times when there's a budget surplus, which is the case here, there's still a budget surplus. A lot of this is you know, still some of the, the COVID money that came through. Um, the Republicans wanted to cry and then take in on the state level and spend. But a lot of times when Republicans see surpluses like this, they decide to give have tax breaks, more and more tax breaks. If you give money to, to state employees through raises, you can't have – either can't have or can't have as generous a tax cut, which Republicans always love. Do you see that there's a little bit of a, a shift from – traditional Republican thinking here? Uh, Yes, but I think, again, I've got to agree with Tim. This uh, pay raise for, especially the one for state employees, is so far-reaching. I mean, teachers, too. I mean, there's teachers in every county, right? It's so far-reaching that it um, it really does 
um, give him a lot, you know, uh, it's a good message for him and a thing that people will remember that like when, you know, three years or four years from now, when he's doing whatever he's going to do next, this will not be forgotten. Um, pay raises are often, you know, I mean, we remember when we get, I mean, it's a, it's a, for some of these people, it's a pretty big raise. So I think, um, while it may, uh, veer away from, uh, some conservative, especially ultra conservative values, uh, I also think that it's a, a, a populist move that, um, secures support for him across the state. So, Yes, and I guess the last piece of this was just this past week, um, a move to uh, take back some of the cuts that Nathan Deal, the previous Republican governor, made to hope. Um, it's going to more fully fund Pope Scholarship, and he, he got praised by multiple Democratic elected officials on this one. Uh, Stacey Evans, I know, who had been involved in the past uh, time, was very critical of Nathan Deal. Um, I want to say even say the Democratic leader of either the House or Senate actually praised the move as well. Um, Catherine, um, how surprised were you by you know actually doing the undoing what Nathan Deal had cut before? Uh, I, I mean, I think it's great, and I think you know we all. Everyone in Georgia appreciates the Hope Scholarship, I think, and and especially, you know, in, increases to it. Um, I'm not sure that it's viewed as uh, going back on something that Nathan Deal did. I don't think I, – I haven't seen that in the messaging, but maybe I've just missed it. Um, but I have been – I was surprised to see – um, some quite, you know, liberal, progressive Democrats praising him. And, again, this is uh, – I mean, it, it's really good for Georgia to increase the the um, value and, uh, and um, you know, worth of the Hope Scholarship. That's all good, just like new jobs are good and pay raises are good. But it's also good for his – reputation going forward yes and tim your thoughts on this um you know more fully refunding in some ways of hope scott the hope scholarship well again it's broad-based and popular all the way across the state and uh it touches every corner of the state, everyone practically in the state knows somebody or is kin to somebody that um, has taken part in the Hope Scholarship. I would wager that the Hope Scholarship is the most popular program that's been passed in this state in the last 50 years. I can't think of one more popular. Anything positive you do with that can only mean good things for the program 
and for you politically. So, oh, come on, again, then what about, what about the Go Fish program? <laughs> Sorry. Well, <laughs> yeah. Well, Go well, Fish is a. <laughs> Before we get too deep in praising the wonderful Go Fish program <laughs> that has got dozens and dozens of people to visit Perry, Georgia over the past few years to visit that uh, fish museum or whatever it is, um, we're going to welcome in to our guest and go out to the other side of the country. Welcome back to the Kudzu Vine, Sting, Steve Sizinger. Singizer. My apologies, Steve. <laughs> No, you're good, and uh, I'm just chat. You know, if I if I seem a little distracted, just know that I'm checking Southwest Carolina to see if they have direct direct flights to Perry, Georgia. Because if there's a fish museum, that's where I'm going to be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you can actually it's, a, you, it's some interactive stuff, and you can actually fish. So, um, yeah, because I tell you what, I, I knew you were from Los Angeles. So I thought if the Rams or the Chargers are playing, we might kind of, kind of had you. But since it's up further north, uh, the game's on, we might be okay. Um, well, Steve, I hate to you know bring up a tragedy right off with you, but since you're actually in the county in which this occurred, um, we heard overnight, I guess, at least those of the East Coast overnight, that there was a tragic uh, shooting for a Lunar New Year festival in um, an area that on the map it looked like it was east of downtown L.A. Kind of tell us what you can about it. Yeah, uh, it, it's kind of dominating the news here. They even broke into the uh, the halftime shows of the uh, the football games to to give updates. Uh, Monterey Park, I, I got to tell you guys, I was just I just literally just drove through there Thursday night uh, on my way to uh, my brother's football banquet. Uh, Monterey Park is just about five ten miles east of downtown Los Angeles. It is a predominantly Asian community. Uh, for those who who've never been to this. Uh, to the LA area, there is a heavily Asian community, a very close knit Asian community that is spread out among several communities just to the east of Los Angeles uh, downtown area. Monterey Park, Alhambra, San Marino, uh, Temple City, that area, for those of you who've been out here might know the area casually. Uh, it looks like someone went to one dance center that was uh, holding a Lunar New Year celebration, uh, killed 10. Uh, wounded another 20, and then or wounded another 10. Excuse me, 10, 20 casualties total, and then went to another one in Alhambra, which is just the next next town over, uh, intent on doing the same thing, but actually got uh, got rushed and disarmed and was able to make an escape, and they were able to get a description of the gentleman who uh, may not be alive anymore. I, I did not catch the latest news uh, before I came on to talk to you guys, but at about, as of about three hours ago, they had surrounded a vehicle in Torrance, California, which I, I got to tell you guys, uh, candidly, not trying to give away too much of my uh, personal info here, is a stone's throw from where I live. And uh, the shopping center where they found this car is, is one that my daughter is actually planning to go to today. Uh, and uh, and may yet still because it's very hard to separate my daughter from shopping, but that's that's, that's another story <laughs> for another time. Um, but they had the area roped off where they found the van, and it, the person inside was no longer uh, was no longer living. Now whether they were shot by someone else or it was self inflicted, still not known. But the the suspect looked to be an older gentleman. 
um, was uh, the the police did identify him as an Asian male. Um, they're not sure what the what the you know what the motive was, or it is being investigated as a possible hate crime. Um, uh, although the victims and the the suspect were both of the same uh, same general race, we don't know much more in terms of details yet about what might have been the motivation behind this. But it's just as Pat Harvey, who is an icon here in local TV news, guys. As she just put it five minutes ago before I came on with you guys, uh, this is the, I think her, her counting was, this is the 33rd mass shooting. In, and, I, and I'm sitting there listening to her talk, and I'm going, oh, she's going to get it wrong. She's going to say 2022. It's not 2022 anymore. And then she said, it's the 33rd mass shooting in 2023, which is only 22 mm. days in. Mm. And uh, I'm reminded mournfully, in fact, I'm reminded of the uh, – I think it's a, an onion or a dark side. It's one of those satirical pieces that says, I think it's the onion, that says unthinkable, unprecedented tragedy happens once again in the only place where it happens. You know, it, it's just, um, I, it, it, it bothers me immensely that there have been now three mass shootings in this country that I know someone that was at least tangentially connected to it. That's how common they are. Mm. So sad and so tragic, and unfortunately, I can't think of how many times we've had to discuss one of these tragic events on the show, and and you just know it'll happen again because nothing's being done to change it. Um, well, Steve, I, when I invited you on, I plan to talk to you a lot about California politics and good news. Uh, Tim and Catherine are planning on doing that, uh, but another story came up. And the last time we had John, we talked about education issues, and this is from Florida, and I think we discussed how you know, uh, Ron DeSantis' comp- complicated uh, relationship with educators and higher education and everything else, um, or really I guess he uses them more as a political football, um, and he's done it again. There's another AP course on African-American studies that um, I can't tell if it was going to be piloted across the country or it was going to be piloted – is Florida is one of the states, but he turned the class down because he feels it's racially divisive, uh, which just you know is you know pretty bizarre, mind blowing. I know you teach social studies at the high school level. I think you even teach AP classes. Uh, what's your take on what Ron DeSantis has done with this particular announcement? I do teach uh, high school uh, social studies AP. I teach AP uh, American government and AP uh, American history. And the funny thing is that we actually this week as a social studies department at the local high school where I teach, I teach in suburban Los Angeles here, uh, we were talking about the state of California, quite the opposite of Ron DeSantis, is actually looking within the next, I think it's in the next three years, I think it has to be done by 2025, uh, a mandated ethnic studies course of some description. All California high schools have to do some form of ethnic studies, whether that be a African American studies class, or if it is a sociology class, or it, it could be, it doesn't even have to properly understood be social studies. It could be an English class that looks at literature um, from underrepresented groups, or whatever the case may be. But some form of ethnic studies. So California, not surprisingly, going the opposite way of Florida. The thing about it is, I saw this morning flipping through social media that the California department, no, excuse me, I take it back, I'm sorry, the Florida Department of Education, which at this point is just a, a mouthpiece for DeSantis and his national presidential 
uh, aspirations, released exactly what they objected to in the AP, the College Board's African-American course description. Now, I imagine a lot of your listeners aren't teachers, so I just have to, I have to give them a little bit of behind the curtain, if you will. The AP course descriptions for any course, I don't care if it's psychology, American history, African-American history, calculus, whatever it may be, is a book. It is literally hundreds of pages. And they had, I think, six sentences in the thing. They said, this is why we can't, you know, determine that we've determined this course is unacceptable. Six sentences out of probably what had to be about a 175-page course description. Uh, that's showing me that you're looking for things to object to. Uh, and I, it's just, it's par for this man's course. He has decided that his lane to the presidency, I'm sure, is his eventual aspiration. I mean, I don't think anybody at this point doubts that. But that his lane is he's going to be the – he's going to take all the culture war rhetoric that Trump made uh, mainstream, and he's going to do it in a more competent package. So he's going to do all the culture war stuff that Trump talked about but never actually was really able to do. And he's done it against – you know, he, if he wanted to genuinely piss me off – I don't know if piss me off is a phrase I get to use. I don't know if I just got beeped or not. Uh, <laughs> personally, he's doing a great job because his two biggest targets are social studies teachers and LGBT people. And lo and behold, here I am, a social studies teacher with two LGBT kids. So, yeah, if, if, if he wanted me to, you know, hate his guts, he's doing a great job. Well, and I think hmm. what's even sadder for the children of Florida is that so many of the educators, and probably even more so the higher education uh, professors, are just going to stop teaching or leave the state or what have you. And I'm reminded of a scene in, in Waterboy in which Henry Winkler's character, the coach, leaves practice and leaves him with Farmer Fran, and the practice goes sideways. Farmer Fran's are going to be all over Florida classrooms in a few years if um, something's not done to make the profession more respectable in that state. And if you ignore your education, you're ignoring your future, and that's just not a good place to be. Well, Steve, I've asked you about non-California electoral questions. I think Tim may have another question as well that's not um, California-based, but I think Tim and Catherine have more of those. So I'm going to turn you over to Tim, then Catherine. Good evening, Steve. Thank you for being with us again. And uh, the first question I'm going to ask you is extremely political. So uh, because uh, in the interim, uh, since your last appearance, uh, Los Angeles has gone out and elected themselves a new mayor. And uh, I saw Karen Bass interviewed just this morning and she said, without a doubt, the number one problem in the city of Los Angeles is homelessness. So we've heard about homelessness for a long time. What's being done about it on a local and state level out there? And what more politically can be done and by whom? Uh, that's a great question. If I knew the answer to that, I might be mayor of Los Angeles, but... <laughs> You know, it is, it's an, it's an issue everywhere for sure, and it is an acute issue here in Los Angeles. I was just 
yesterday. Uh, I have to I, – I know I'm going back to a far earlier point of the conversation, but I'm actually neither a Rams nor a Chargers fan. I'm actually uh, – because neither uh, local team was really in L.A. when I was coming of age, I'm actually a Kansas City Chiefs fan. So I was driving out to my brother's house to watch the game yesterday, and you see encampments under every overpass. Um, I got caught up in a, a pretty good-sized brush fire in the fall during football season going out to the game, and it was started cooking in an encampment. Uh, that was underneath an overpass. I mean, it, it is it's pretty ubiquitous at this point. I mean, you can go down any downtown street. Now, what's being done about it, there are some things that are being done about it. Actually, a former athlete of ours um, is part of a county-run program where they their whole objective is to meet and assess uh, homeless individuals and families and determine uh, how ready they are to leave the streets because there is some variation to that. Uh, he told me a fascinating story, in fact, that one of the people they, that they were able to find housing for, uh, the person came in and literally put a tent up in the living room and lived in there. They just weren't they, – they had been so accustomed to living a certain way that, that the transition to being housed uh, was, was awkward to them at first, right? Hmm. So that's one of the things that's actually being done is these programs of people going in, assessing individually, and, and pulling people from, uh, from uh, homeless situations – into uh, county facilities like uh, one of the things that uh, I'm sorry, I'm stammering a little bit, but I'm trying to find the proper wording here. Uh, I can't remember the name of the program. That's what's driving me crazy. But there was a program that was actually started during COVID because homelessness really spiked during COVID. You had so many service mm-hmm. workers out of work. So one of the things they did, and I thought this was, I've been saying this for 30 years, but I'm a history teacher, so I'm not, I'm not a public policy guy, but I'm like, we have all these hotels in L.A., and a lot of which are way underutilized, why don't they convert those to home, you know, housing? And sure enough, that's what they did. Uh, one of them was a stone store from my parents' house in, in the Valley. They took hotels, uh, a lot of the Motel 6 chain here in L.A., actually, and they converted them into uh, housing for homeless people. So it was all county-run. There's actually another one not far from where I live now in the city of Lawndale. And that's one solution. But the problem is that's a micro solution, right? Even your mm-hmm. you know, biggest Motel 6 is only going to have 125 rooms. Uh, so that's the kind of things they're looking at. They are looking to build housing because ultimately that's the biggest problem. It's, it's that there's such a scarcity of affordable housing. I have a friend, a person I coach with, a person that I work out with, and he lives by himself. He lives in a one-bedroom apartment in a very middle-class, at best, community here in Los Angeles. It's $2,100 a month. Mm-hmm. Your average family, you know, your, your, your average family working at or near minimum wage is going to have a very hard time affording housing. So we do have a lot of multifamily residencies in Los Angeles. So one of the things you need is you need more apartments, more uh, multi-unit housing. But the problem mm-hmm. there is the NIMBY problem. No one wants a, a 300 uh, unit apartment building in their neighborhood because they're afraid of the traffic. They're afraid of the long lines at their grocery stores. They're afraid, afraid, afraid. And that's where the problem lies. Um, and it has become acute again here in LA, especially because it's just, it's so expensive to live here. Even if you have a job, I don't know what the percentage is of folks here that are homeless or, or underhoused who have jobs, but I guarantee you, it's cl- it's got to be over a third, and I would not be shocked if if someone told me it's close to fifty percent. Wow. 
So that's the major problem in Los Angeles. Now I want to turn my attention to the major problem in Northern California. And that, of course, is the tragic latest round of flooding. Is climate change now the top priority issue in the state of California? Uh, If it's not, it should be. If not A1 at the top of the list, it should definitely be heavier in the discussion, not just at the state level, but the federal level, because the state can only respond so much. Uh, It's bad. Uh, You know, you can do so much, and they have tried. Uh, We did a water capture program here down in uh, Los Angeles County that actually did – preserve, I think it was 33 million gallons in the last uh, set of rains. I've lived here my entire life. I've lived within five miles of where I'm sitting talking to you guys right now, and I don't know that I've seen a not. – we've had heavier rain, but I have not remembered – we went something like 14 out of 15 days where it rained at least some, and that just mm-hmm. – I'm telling you, that never happens. And that's coming mm-hmm. off about an eight-month spell where it didn't rain at all. I mean, not mm-hmm. even a little bit. So – it's pretty clear that we're going to start to have, I think so far the reason it's not a issue A1 and on the front burner the way you asked is because it, it hasn't, at least with a great level of frequency, been something that has been uh, right up in the face uh, of the electorate. It's starting to get there. With the flooding up in Northern California, we had a, a real bad heat wave in September and you started to have the blackouts. Uh, the high winds that, that we've always had some wind, but so bad now that our power companies, particularly in northern and central California, have to actually shut power off to certain areas to keep fires mm-hmm. from starting. Uh, and mm-hmm. it's just you're starting to see it more and more. And, and even things that are nominally good things are still problematic. Like uh, one of the biggest ski resorts here in California, I have a friend who, who lives up there, uh, they couldn't open for about half of the winter break because they had too much snow. So there's a tremendous fear of avalanche. Mm. So here is this, you know, Mammoth Mountain, for those who who know California skiing or or snowboarding. I'm not – trust me, I I think of skiing. I'm too old to think of snowboarding. That that looks like a suicide mission to me. But um, (laughs) hugely lucrative ski resort, and people were just up there spinning their wheels during the winter break because they couldn't get on the mountain. Uh, Now, and it's – every side of it is it's not going to get any better for sure. And we're seeing it get, if you know, it rapidly more issues of concern, I guess I would say. Like, for example, this uh, right at the start of the school year, I, I, I know one, I can't remember which one of y'all is a teacher, and I apologize, but if you're anything like me, you think of things in terms of the school year, not the calendar year. So it was right at the beginning of the school year. I must have been the first week of September, the last week of August. We had a hurricane uh, the decayed to a tropical storm that came within 110 miles of L.A. So we had, it, it was like South Florida. It was 96 degrees with 80% humidity. Uh, one day, because uh, it was a football day, so I remember it, it was raining and it was 102. It was, I've never seen anything like it. And we don't get mm-hmm. storms like that. This is not a tropical mm-hmm. climate. The, the, the mm-hmm. oceans are generally supposed to be too cold. The, the, the global weather patterns are supposed to be such that that stuff gets steered way further south and literally it was off the coast of San Diego. 
So when you hear things like that, you start to think, okay, it's inevitable because we aren't doing anything to reverse this or even really to, to, to stem the tide in a meaningful way. How long is it going to be before the first hurricane, Category 2, Category 3, hits Los Angeles? Which, unlike the Gulf Coast, which has been devastated time and again by these things with increasing frequency, we have no preparation for that. You guys got to be out here when it rains, let, let alone the something the magnitude of a hurricane. So for those of us who live here, it, 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 it should be concerning. But the crazy thing, guys, is they don't make the connection. Wow, what weird weather we're having. It's like it's not a coincidence, guys. But hopefully the realization's coming, and, and, and it's coming at a terrible cost. That was a lot of really uh, valuable farmland that was under three feet of water a couple weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And, and climate change is a thing, and it really doesn't care if anyone believes in it or not, does it? No, no, I mean, not at all. I mean, it's going to go ahead and do what it does, you know, and it's doing right. some bad it's stuff not, in your state. <laughs> it, it, and it's not the kind of thing that that you can, you know, debate about for a long, you know, for, for a century. Mm-hmm. Because the longer you wait, the more acute the problem is going to become. And it does get to a point where the level that you're able to reverse it become, uh, becomes less and less. And we may be already past that pivot point. I don't know. Again, you know, the only science I took in college was political science. So, But my older daughter uh, took the – we were talking about APs or took an AP environmental science and has become a bit of a uh, – in her in her young age, become a bit of a a global warming alarmist, and she would not say alarmist; she would say realist. And I don't think she's wrong. Mm. With that, I'm going to turn to two more questions. One question is about a central figure in your state, and the question that David alluded to will be about uh, a certain gentleman who does not live in your state, for which I'm sure you're eternally grateful. Uh, but at any rate, I, I, I'm seeing a lot of polling now, um, and there's Gavin Newsom's name in the mix. Is he looking hard at something on the national stage? I would think that he probably is. I don't know, <laughs> to be honest with you, as someone who's voted for him twice, I don't know how far that's going to carry. It's very strange with Governor Newsom. Uh, he has done fine here. He, he, he won his first election with 62% of the vote, survived a recall with over 60% of the vote, and that never happens. And in what was, I have to tell you guys, I don't think we've talked since before the election, what was a lousy year for Democrats here? We really, I mean, mm-hmm. it's Democrats in California. The worst you're ever going to be is pretty good, but that's what it was. It was just pretty good. I think he got reelected with 59%. Which, on one level, you're like, well, that's not that great. But by another level, that's exactly what Ron DeSantis won with, and everyone was handling him as the greatest conquering hero of the election. So, But even through all those things, he's been very popular here. But nationally, you know, just in kind of the commentariat, if you will, right, the, the, the public conversation, he seems to have a weird reservoir of people who dislike him because he's kind of – he has kind of a, a prototypical, if you're going to take a slick politician from television, I mean, let's face it, he looks the part. Uh-huh. He really does. 
and uh, and I think that that and and having the past relationship with uh, the new I don't think they're married but the new Mrs. Trump Jr. Uh, Kimberly Guilfoyle because they were indeed once married and there are some absolutely I don't want any of your people to Google image search this until they've eaten their dinner but there are some cringy <laughs> pictures of Governor Newsom and Kimberly Guilfoyle that they took in their younger days when I think it was when he was mayor of San Francisco or maybe before that even I mean they are wow. Anyways, I think he is a good enough soldier that he won't run in 24 unless Trump doesn't. But he's a young mm-hmm. man. He, I think he's 55, uh, looks mm-hmm. 10 years younger than that. Um, but the funny thing about him is that I just don't know if he'll play nationally. And, and I just came to my head with the vibe he gives off. He gives off very strong John Edwards vibes. Mm. Young, oh. articulate attractive, looks 10 years younger than he really is, but but really can command a camera. Well, I mean, a lot of people do love that, I'll admit. In 04, I was an Edwards guy. Um, kind of ashamed to admit that now, given what we found out about the dude. But um, And there will be people who will gravitate to that, but, yeah, I just don't know. And I don't know how he'd play nationally. We'll see. Um, he's ambitious. There's no doubt about that. And I think he uh-huh. genuinely – the one thing that might push him, to answer your question, is if Biden obviously doesn't run, and if it looks like Trump isn't going to be the nominee, it looks like it's going to be DeSantis. Because he has some sort of a weird – it may be just in their own heads, but he and DeSantis have this odd rivalry with one another um, that is – it's a little fun to watch. Every time DeSantis does something, it seems like, it seems like uh, Governor Newsom goes out of his way to do the exact opposite and make a big deal of it. <laughs> like when they issued the thing about uh, transgender athletes, uh, Newsom gave a speech saying we need to support transgender people. It's like whatever DeSantis says, he's ready to come back there and smack him around. So, so I think that would be the kind of thing that might get him to go. All right. So now let's move across the country and talk about an international gentleman. And believe me, I use that term loosely. Uh, but you've, you've uh, tweeted and, and retweeted uh, some about this fella. And so I'd like to ask you, uh, best guess, is George Santos going to survive and stay in Congress? Or is the preponderance of all of this lunacy just going to finally be too much? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> you know... I, I, this is I, I'm going to explain my answer, so it's not just the weakest cop out I've ever given you guys. I don't know. Uh-huh. It's a brave new world out there. I think no one can make him resign, and there's no recall of a federal official, so uh-huh. he's going to have to feel enough heat to walk away. I honestly thought the drag queen thing would do it. I really did, because if there's anything that makes you persona non grata in the Republican Party in the year of our Lord 2023. It's being anything related to anything even in the same county as transgenderism. And this guy being a mm-hmm. drag queen from way back, on top of already being LGBT, oh, I thought that that would end it. But it didn't. He, you know, immediately tried to, to hand wave it away. I think the quote was something that was just amazing, something like, I'm not, I'm, I'm not a drag queen. I just had fun at a festival. Being <laughs> a drag queen. 
<laughs> you know, it wasn't he had fun at a fe- it wasn't he had fun at a festival getting cotton candy and going on the tilt world. Being a drag queen, um, but again, all that has to happen is, you know, he just has to not resign. And I think we've seen that this guy is utterly shameless. So I don't know. What I will tell you is. He's dead meat come the next election. I mean, he just – he is. He'll, uh-huh. get, he'll get waxed in the primary. Uh, he's done enough to embarrass that area, which has got a lot of older voters that that don't – you know, and the Republican voters there are hardcore. Uh, and if he somehow manages to survive the primary, which he won't, because even the Nassau County uh, Republican pre- uh, chairman said they want him out. But even if you were somehow by all against all odds to survive the primary, you get waxed in the general because he barely won to begin with. Um, so his career is two years at best no matter what happens. But I just don't know what's going to make this guy resign. What I mean, he's been humiliated on every conceivable level. Well, I, you know what? I take that back. There's one way that he may have to resign against his will. And there are a lot of people on the left that have been bringing this up, and maybe some of you are even thinking about it, if it's proved he's not an American citizen. Mm-hmm. And there is reason to believe that may be true. If he never got his citizenship after living in Brazil, that's ball game right there. He can't serve yes, it. It's it not even a matter of choice at that point. Uh, yeah. So that's the only thing that's going to take him out. Do I? So let me let me say my I don't know. Let me couch it. If it's proven he's not a citizen, obviously it becomes a, a moot point because he's done. Aside from that, right. I don't think he'll resign. I just don't. Think All he will. right. And with that, uh, there's a lot more California stuff about the U.S. Senate and such as that. I'm going to send it over to Catherine to work on it with you. Catherine? Hey, thanks for being on the show tonight. It's good to hear, good to hear from you again. Um, yeah, we need oh, it's to great talk to be about here. what's happening with um, the U.S. Senate in California. Uh, as far as I know, uh, we haven't gotten any resignation news but we do have people stepping forward saying they're going to run so what's going on yeah that's interesting isn't it i think there may be a a very subterranean sign of the level of respect that some of the members of the house have for diane feinstein i'm not i'm not an insider in politics I, i i do write for daily co's elections and i've written for them now you know, blessed enough to do it now for over 13 years, but I've never worked on Capitol Hill like some of our writers have. So I don't know that I'm, I'm not claiming any inside knowledge here, but everything I've ever seen is the courtesy of pr- prospective candidates is to wait till there's a retirement announcement to announce your bid. And nobody's yeah. doing that. People are staffing up. Pe- you know, obviously Katie Porter already made her announcement earlier this earlier in the month and Adam Schiff, immediately showed his hand because he and his supporters just dotted Katie Porter for announcing it in the middle of all the flooding issues. And so, you know, he's running because why else would he, why would he be otherwise be so outraged? Uh, and so we're off to the races and Diane Feinstein hasn't said a blessed word yet. <laughs> now everyone assumes she'll retire and I assume she will too, because she's, you know, nearing 90 and everything we've heard, and it's, and it's tragic stuff, is that, that her, her ability to serve has his weakened as time has gone on in terms of just basic uh, day and dad ability to, to put in the work. 
uh, it's not even a point of rumor anymore. Even our own uh, colleagues and, and, and staffers are, are, are giving it to news outlets. So I assume she'll retire. I don't know that she'll resign, but I do think she'll retire. And as is the case whenever we have an open seat here in California, when that happens, it's a free-for-all. The only way I think she would re- resign is if she resigns, then Newsom gets to kind of give someone a head start. And that's really the way you got to look at it, by, by giving someone the interim tag. Because uh, he can appoint a senator that will serve till 2024. Um, and that would, boy, uh, would that be something. But I don't think she'll do yeah, that. I, I think at this point – oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just going to say, I, I'm, I'm, I imagine uh, Gavin Newsom would be like, careful what you wish for. <laughs> like, you know, that's a – that would be I would, a big – I wouldn't want it. Nope. I, I wouldn't want to be in that position because no matter what you do, you're pissing somebody off. That's a guarantee. Right. Uh, but I'll tell you what. I think she doesn't do it anyway because I think the one thing that she still has that she's very clear on is she is, I think, a bit offended by the way she's been treated. So I don't think she's going to go out of way and make anybody's life easier in California Democratic politics. It had to just absolutely burn her up to see Katie Porter. If anything, oh. it made me think, gee, she might – she might run again just to spite him, but she'd lose. That, that's the harsh reality. Uh, and it's sad because she's had a, a tremendous and lengthy career, but if she ran again, she'd lose. Um, the only thing that could save her is if 15 Democrats jump in and she somehow made it to the final two, but I think she'd still lose in the final two anyway. Um, she only got 53% of the vote in 2018. We forget that. Against Kevin DeLeon, who – uh, his most recent issues aside, and he has had some doozies. For those who don't know, he got meshed in a, a an open mic, or a, not an open mic, but someone taped a conversation he had with other members of the LA City Council where he said some just unbelievably awful stuff and quite a bit of racist stuff to boot. But this is before all that happened. Kevin DeLeon was not a well-known guy. He was in the state legislature. Well, he got 47% of the vote against her in 2018. Six years, you know, at the time of the election, six years later, six years older, Six years more bad headlines for, for Senator Feinstein. I just can't see it. I can't, I can't see her running. And that touches off a, a free-for-all, and it's going to be a Democratic free-for-all because we have, a top, we have a top two primary here, and the only one that hasn't involved two Democrats of recent vintage was uh, in 2022, uh, just most recently, Alex Padilla ran against Mark Muser here, who was a Republican, and got smoked. I think, I think Padilla got 60, 61% of the vote. Uh, easy. So there won't be a major Republican runs, and there aren't any on the bench really looking at it, I can't imagine. Uh, most of our House members are relatively recent to the House, and who'd waste their career on that? And the only one that's not recent to the House is Kevin McCarthy. He's not going to run. Uh, and so it's going to be a two-Democrat race in all probability, and probably Porter and Schiff. Uh, they're the ones that have the most money. Porter, people don't realize outside of L.A. what a monster fundraiser she is. My goodness, that woman can raise money. Uh, and she needed every dime of it here in 2022 because it was really close. Uh, Schiff, same thing. Um, now, the thing about Schiff is he comes with the baggage of being the most public face on impeaching Trump. So you may be in a position, guys, and this would be something, of Katie Porter becoming U.S. senator by dint of – you know, MAGA voters 
who are as politically polar opposite of hers as humanly possible, but at least he's not Adam Schiff. Who, if you look at like DW nominee, is actually more liberal than she is, but they hate him. Okay, now I want to ask a, a, a more general, a bigger issue question, and we don't have a lot of time, but hopefully we can put a little dent in it. With um, the Dobbs decision, uh, we now have uh, 50 states where we're deciding abortion laws, as well as other laws. I mean, there's a lot that you know we often talk about how important our state legislatures are for our day-to-day, you know, bread and butter issues. But a lot of people don't pay attention. And so I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts or have thought about how we remind people and how we energize people to be more uh, concerned about their state legislatures. Because I think uh, we're going to need that boost moving forward on a lot of different on LGBTQI issues on um, marriage equality, on uh, obviously on abortion, contraception, all health care a lot. So, what are your thoughts about that? It's a great question, and I and I note the time, so I'll, I'll make it as brief as I can. I'm going to throw kind of a, a a curveball answer, which is it's all about driving just turnout in general. Because the one thing I've noticed, I've been a, become I'm an amateur, but I've become a bit of a student of state legislative politics. I follow all the chambers uh, probably more than anything else at this point uh, in terms of elective politics. And wherever the, the global turnout is, it breaks almost purely on partisan lines now. It didn't used to do that, but it does now. So if you can just drive as many people to the polls as possible, you're going to get the kind of legislative turnouts you seek. And the, the absolute A-plus example of that in 2022 was Michigan. Michigan turnout was immense, uh, and, and, and Gretchen Whitmer won easily, uh, way easier than I think most people thought she would. It was a double-digit win or almost a double-digit win, and, they, uh, and the Democrats took control of both chambers in Michigan for the first time since I was in grade school. Uh, contrast that with, I hate to say it, and I alluded to it earlier, California. Uh, we didn't do terribly here, gained a couple seats uh, in the assembly, but that was more a product of the redistricting here. Uh, which slightly favored uh, the Democrats. Turnout here was terrible. Uh, it was afraid, it was less than the recall election the year before uh, because there just wasn't a real sense that there was a lot at stake. So if you drive overall turnout, you know, I, to use the, the field of dreams on it, if you build it, they will come. If you build a, a reason for people to come to polls at all, they'll go all the way down that ballot and they'll get you the state legislature you deserve. Hmm. The question is, how do we do that? But, but you're absolutely right. Yeah. And, uh, oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm sorry if I'm misunderstood. I thought, I thought you were talking about just the importance of state legislative, state legislative politics in general, which, which I share with you. But, yeah, that's going to be the thing. And I think places where people feel that stuff's really at risk, we saw it in 2022. Pennsylvania, yeah. Michigan, uh, even Georgia – the Democrats, obviously, with, with Warnock, held their own, and they held their more or less held their legislative gains from the previous two elections. Uh, Arizona, they came within just a handful of votes to get in the state legislature there. Uh, and, of course, won the governor's race, which was a, a pleasant upset and kept Carrie Lake from being a national figure, thanks to God. So <laughs> I, I'm telling you. 
Uh, I just think it's it's replacing. It is our biggest our biggest challenge going forward. So I appreciate your thoughts on that. And I'm going to pass it back to David. Thank you so much. All right. Well, Steve, thank you so much for joining us. Um, We're going to have to have you on sooner than later because we didn't even get into all the congressional races. Anything that might be, you know, down ballot coming up, mayoral races in California. As an educator, chat GPT, we didn't get to any of that. So at some point in the near future, I'm going to call on you again. But before we leave, uh, before you leave our listeners, tell them how they can read you on Daily Coast, follow you on social media, anything else. Yes, sir. Uh, I uh, am on Daily Coast elections, mostly on their election night coverage, but that team is so damn good. You should cut, you should read it every day, whether I'm there or not. Uh, and that's uh, that's dailycoast.com or elections.dailycoast.com. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at uh, just my name, Steve Singizer. Last name is S I N G I S E R. It is impossible to spell. Blame my ancestors. And uh, <laughs> those are the places to find me. Or, or if you have me in Los Angeles, look for a kind of overweight guy with a gray beard dressed way too casually. There's your guy. <laughs> All right. We'll pick you out of the 20 million in the county. Well, Steve, thanks again for coming yeah, on the I show. Mean, oh, come on, it's only 10. <laughs> I thought it was 20 million. Okay. Yeah, no, I mean, county's only 10. It's the same number for a county. Yeah. <laughs> well, well right. Steve, thanks for coming in, and hope you have a great start to your year. You as well. Happy New Year to all of you. Thank you, sir. All right, Steve Singizer. Always glad to have Steve on. So much great uh, knowledge and content. You can tell he can talk about just almost any subject seemingly with the political world. Um, But uh, we have another great show next week. Um, Jeff Singer from Daily Coast, which Jeff hasn't been on the show in a while, but used to be on all the time. We're getting Jeff back in, and one of the places Jeff's lived has been Louisiana, so he's always welcome to talk the odd-year governor's race they have coming up, so we're going to be excited to talk to him. That will be Catherine and I, because, Tim, you're going to be on break, correct? Yes, sir. I'll be out of the state next week. So it'll be just Catherine and I and Jeff, and then we may end up throwing in a guest host. We'll just see what the week holds. But until then, then the Kudzu Vine. Good night, guys. Good night, y'all. Everybody. We are the heirs of that first revolution. We're a strong and united.